Good morning. That was some powerful singing. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. The title for today's sermon is God's Warning Call to Persevere in Faithfulness. God's Warning Call to Persevere in Faithfulness. Two weeks ago, I preached from Psalm 95. I preached verses 1 through 7. And the sermon title two weeks ago was, Let's Worship Our Great God Today with Songs and Submissive Hearts. Today I'll be preaching the second half of the psalm, Psalm 95, verses, verses 7d through 11. And if you're not here two weeks ago, that's okay, because I'll give a thorough review as part of my longer introduction. And this review will also be important for understanding and thus responding appropriately to today's sermon. Uh, also, I'm excited I'm going to give a brief gospel proclamation, uh, and this will be uh, in the introduction, and it will incorporate ideas from the psalm also. So I want to begin by reading the entire psalm, 95. Then I'm going to pray. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Into his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Abba Father, we just thank you for the preaching of your, your word and help us today to be uh, challenged and help the, uh, the saints, the believers, to uh, be motivated to persevere in, in faithfulness. I pray they're also uh, comforted. And also pray, Heavenly Father, that you will draw, draw in your elect today, draw in lost sinners, draw them to yourself through the preaching of the gospel. Bring them to you, God, as they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. In his name I pray. Amen. Psalm 95, 1 through 7. It's a beautiful and profound call to worship. And there are actually two calls to worship. The first call is in verses 1 and 2, and the second call is in verse 6. And this call to worship is actually a command. But it has the warm feel of an invitation. Look at the first two verses. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. 
we are called to sing very expressively to the Lord. We just did that. That was exciting. This exuberant praise is exemplified by the phrase, shout joyfully in my Bible. Other translations may say, make a joyful noise. And consider, consider this. We just experienced this. The holy enthusiasm, holy enthusiasm of joyful singing accompanied by various instruments. And we didn't have this, but we go back in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. We think of clashing cymbals. And we did have this. We had some clapping. And also think about shouted out amens and hallelujahs. Now that's a joyful noise. The Old Testament believers, their hearts were set aflame at the mention of the name Yahweh. We learned last time that the Lord in all capital letters means Yahweh or Jehovah. This was the name above all names for the faithful Israelite. Yahweh is identified as the rock of our salvation at the end of verse 1. The saints of the Old Testament, as well as New Testament saints, love to sing psalms joyfully to Jehovah for our salvation. Not only do we sing joyfully, we sing thankfully. According to verse 2, we can come before the presence of God only because our sins have been forgiven by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Into God's presence means before His face. This sweet, piercing fellowship is a cheerful communion. Again, we can only come into God's presence to experience fullness of joy because the barrier of our sins has been removed in Christ. True believers, true worshipers have had the unholiness of their sins, the unrighteousness of their sins, removed forever by the righteous one's atonement. And true worshipers have been clothed with the positional holiness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen to Isaiah, the evangelical prophet in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. As he worships Yahweh because of this imputed righteousness of Christ. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. It's Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Think about the word come in verse 1. This is a gospel call to come and worship. Only those people who have obeyed God's gospel call to repent and believe can answer this call, this command to worship. We are saved to worship. We are saved to worship God. Amen? Yes, amen. By God's amazing saving grace, we believe in the glorious gospel. The gospel is our escape from what we deserve for our sins. Punishment in hell. Severe teeth-gnashing pain forever away from the presence of God's love forever. Have you embraced in saving faith the gospel? If you have believed the gospel, you've been blessed to come into the presence of God today in sincere heart worship. If you have not, if you have not biblically believed in Jesus Christ and salvation, May the Holy Spirit give you a new heart to repent and believe today. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today, if only you will hear his voice. May the Holy Spirit perform spiritual heart surgery on you. Today, right now, as you are hearing the preaching of God's word, obey the gospel by believing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Your hearing must be mixed with saving faith for you to be saved. 
according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. The Holy Spirit alone can take out your hard heart and give you a soft, submissive heart. This will cause you to fall on bended knee at the foot of the bloodstained cross of Calvary. Oh, come, oh, please come to Jesus to be saved from your sins, your rebellion against a, such, such a great God we're talking about. You can't save yourself. That is why you need a Savior, and the only Savior is Jesus. His name means Savior. Stop making excuses. If your heart is hard with sin, beg God, beseech God, implore Him to break your hard heart for your sins against Him. Be sorry for your sins against your Maker. The wages of sin is death and hell forever. The soul that sins, it shall die. You have broken all of God's commandments. Repent or turn away from your sin. Submit, yield, surrender, commit, believe. Follow Jesus as the shepherd of your life. He alone is offered to you. Now, today is the day for you to get out of the sinking sand, which leads to hell. Today is the day to stand secure on the rock by receiving with empty hands. God's free gift of salvation, the forever forgiveness of all your sins through Jesus Christ alone. He is the rock of ages. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, even though you have already embraced Jesus in faith, in trusting commitment as your Lord and Savior, be careful, beware, do not let your hearts be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, the trickery of sin. It's true. You cannot lose your salvation. But you can dishonor God and lose or miss out on his very best for you. Don't let that happen. Keep on embracing the gospel every day. Let's keep reviewing. The first word in verse 3 is the word for. The word for means because, and it contains additional and compelling reasons for obeying the command to worship in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. The Bible instructs us to worship the Lord Yahweh Jehovah because He is the great God and the great King. First, great God proclaims He alone is God. He alone is awesome. He alone is great. Therefore, with respect to our worship, He alone is is to be greatly praised. Our God-given goal is to greatly praise God with passionate songs of joy and thankfulness. For or because the Lord is the great God. Yahweh is the great Savior in verse 1, and Yahweh is the great God in verse 3. I get fired up because this, this combination reminds me of one of the strongest explicit statements in the New Testament about Jesus being declared clearly to be God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, part of that verse, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also worship with zeal because verse 3 says that Yahweh is the great king above all gods. He is the great king above all the false idol gods of the pagans. He also is the great God above all the false idol gods of the heathens. Of course, other gods don't exist, but... That didn't stop many of the Israelites from worshiping these idols, even sacrificing their kids to the God of Moloch. Psalm chapter 96, verses 4 and 5, again from last time, connects God's greatness 
with an expression of his greatness, his creation. In Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. The fake gods are nothing because the Lord Yahweh made the heavens. There is only one God. Yahweh's creation of the universe is the foundation for his greatness as king in this context. That's the facet of kingship emphasized. Psalm 95 verses 4 and 5 gives us another reason to joyfully worship, to thankfully worship the Lord. Yahweh is the great creator in verses 4 and 5. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. Since God cre created everything, he controls everything. His creation establishes his dominion. Jehovah is the great sovereign over all his creation. Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Hallelujah. Now we come to verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Perhaps this is the main verse in Psalm 95. It is the second call to worship. And the change in tone from the first call to worship shows us there's a change in tone. This shows us that true worship must have a biblical balance. And from the first to the second call to worship, we hear this change of tone. We go from holy, enthusiastic singing to a humble silence. We go from jubilation to adoration. We are humble to the ground because we have seen, we have beheld our great God high and lifted up with resplendent glory. Oh, the burning effulgence, the Shekinah glory of our triune God. The Bible says, worship and bow down. The point emphasized here with bowing down is the importance of having the right heart attitude in worship. To bow down in submission means to humbly come under the authority of our God, our Maker. This bowing down in worship demonstrates a submissive heart to our sovereign God. The submissive heart attitude expresses itself in kneeling, in prayer, in prayer. Our worship services must be saturated with prayer, and ours are, and I praise God for that. This is well-pleasing and acceptable to God. Verse 7 gives us a profound reason for us to humbly worship Yahweh. For He is our God. Again, the word for means because. We worship God, our Maker, because He is our God. Furthermore... We worship God because the next part of verse 7 says, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We bow down in worship, in humble dependence, as our great shepherd takes care of us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, in Psalm 23. His sheep know intimately his loving voice, and they follow him faithfully. Two weeks ago, I finished with the last part of Psalm uh, last part of Psalm 95 or 7 with 7D. D means the fourth part. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. I view this as a transition statement and therefore a fitting conclusion to the first seven verses of Psalm 95. If you hear and follow the voice of Jesus as your shepherd, you are one of his sheep. Your heart's desire is to be in God's presence, in worship, in praise, and in devotion. This powerful transition phrase, today, if you will hear his voice, 
will also serve as our introduction to today's sermon, sort of the second introduction. The title again is God's Warning Call to Persevere in Faithfulness. Persevere means to keep on going, even when the going gets tough. This has applications for us as believers and for the people who profess Christ but are not real believers. Did you catch that? This applies to believers and for people who may profess Christ but are not, but are not real believers. They understand the gospel in, they, in their head, but it isn't in their heart yet. And that applies to a lot of uh, young children. Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Traditionally, this phrase has been taken uh, to focus on the verses that follow, and, and rightfully so. You'll see that. Let's read again for our immediate context to aid our interpretation. Psalm 95, 7D uh, through 11. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Some of you may be, may be thinking this. This sounds similar to something in Hebrews. Well, you're correct. As a matter of fact, this section of Scripture is quoted almost verbatim in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 3, 12, all the way to chapter 4, to verse 13, is actually an exposition of this biblical text today. And this is amazing. I love it, and towards the end of the sermon, we'll be uh, reading that section of Scripture. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites here in this psalm at the temple. Let's go back in time, maybe about 3,000 years ago, to the time of David. I think back to last week's sermon. If this is the time of David, the temple's a, the tabernacle. It's not the, fa the fancy one that, would, that would, be, would be built by Solomon. But the place doesn't matter. The, the key is... Not the place, but God wants us to worship in spirit and truth. Amen? Let's go back in time, maybe about 3,000 years ago. And I, I want to present briefly what some scholars think is the historical context for this psalm. And I did not share this last time, but I think now is a better time to do it. Uh, there is no super, it's called a superscription above the psalm to give us insights. Those are pretty accurate and helpful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 seems to attribute this psalm to David. In Hebrews 4, 7. But most scholars view this phrase in David or through David uh, uh, to not mean that David actually wrote it, but, it, but that it's a part, part of the Psalter. That's debatable. The Psalter, the Psalms in general. The reference to the wilderness wanderings, though, is inside the Psalm, the reference to the wilderness wanderings, that's the best clue to the historical occasion for the Psalm, psalm being used in the temple worship service. This is not just academically interesting. This is important because this helps us to interpret more accurately. Remember, a correct interpretation must precede correct applications. This psalm may have been composed for the Feast of Tabernacles. John MacArthur writes this, This psalm, with its reference to the wilderness wanderings, may have been composed by David, Hebrews 4, 7, for the Feast of Tabernacles, compared to Psalm 81. During this feast, the people of Israel lived in booths, remembering God's provisions for them, in the wilderness. Warren Wiersbe writes this, quote, 
the annual Feast of Tabernacles was a joyful event. As people looked back on their ancestors' wilderness wanderings, looked around at the bountiful harvest and looked up to give thanks to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 44, unquote. The true worshipers in the Old Testament persevered in faithfulness. Did you hear that? The true worshipers persevered in faithfulness. When they looked back on the wilderness wanderings, they were joyful and thankful. They remembered Yahweh's providential provisions as expressions of his special love for them. With the eyes of faith, they saw Jehovah's faithfulness to provide miraculously for all their needs. Now imagine this. You're, you are a Jew and you're worshiping in the temple and the psalmist, maybe a priest, is leading the worship service and you've been singing joyfully and thankfully to Yahweh. You are praising him for the honor he is worthy of. You passionately praise Jehovah for who he is and what he has graciously, lovingly, mercifully done for you. You are worshiping your great Savior. You are worshiping your great God. You are worshiping your great King. You are worshiping your great Creator. You are worshiping your great Maker. And you are worshiping your great Shepherd. Your exuberant worship has been balanced with the second call to worship, and perhaps you've been kneeling in prayer. Now the scriptures are opened, and you arrive at the biblical text beginning in Psalm 95, 7D. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. How would you feel? Especially if you heard it for the first time. You would be shocked at the dramatic change of mood here. The mood changes abruptly. You're not expecting it. The mood changes from positive to negative. The negative is amplified because there is a change of speakers beginning in verse 8. God is speaking the warning starting in verse 8. Yahweh, almighty God, he is warning his people, Israel, to not follow the unfaithfulness of the first generation of Jews whom he powerfully delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. Everybody present, including the true worshipers, would be surprised. However, because they have, these are true worshipers, however, because they have soft hearts, because they love Jehovah, they would hear eagerly with submissive hearts to, be to the preached word of God. Sure, they might have a prideful thought about needing this warning, but because they are consistently loving, trusting, and obeying Yahweh, they would take that sinful thought captive. We need this warning, too, as believers. The warning passages in Hebrews are used not only to warn false believers, to warn false believers, to encourage them to embrace the gospel. The warning passages are also the means that God uses to, motiv to motivate us, true believers, to equip us to persevere in the faith and thereby grow in sanctification. Knowing, remembering, and obeying the Scripture is the means to prevent a hardening of our hearts. The faithful Jews wanted to be even more faithful. They welcomed this tough preaching, even though it had a sting to it. My sermon two weeks ago emphasized the positive because the first part of our psalm is very positive. However, I did begin with a warning against false worship that God literally hates. I said this, 
But there was a tragic problem. Many Jewish people offered their sacrifices with a ritualistic attitude. They falsely thought that they could live disobedient lives and then earn God's favor by offering, um, by offering sacrifices, various sacrifices. What, is, what does God think about this? What does God think about that? Obe what does he think about it? Obedience with sacrifice? What does he think about not having obedience and then having the sacrifice? Listen to God speaking in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. It's shocking how this begins. This is God speaking in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. And I want to add a couple more verses. Amos 5, 25 and 26. Amos 5, 25 to 26. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Sheon, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. They're worshiping other gods, even sacrificing children to the god of Moloch. They needed to repent with broken hearts and live by faith. They needed soft, submissive hearts to worship God in a way that pleases him. Listen carefully. These are unsaved Jews. They are faithless. Their sacrifices were not presented in faith, looking forward to the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God on, on Calvary's cross. Some of the people gathered here, Psalm 95, probably included some unsaved Jews like this, just like in a congregation of people this size. We have a lot of saved people here. That's unusual for a church. And there's unsaved people too. They, they did not have a heart desire to hear as the Hebrew word Shema instructs. Remember, Shema or hear means to listen, not just to hear it physically, but to listen spiritually with the goal of obeying. I want to hear it so I can obey and honor God and glorify God. God's warning to them about hardening their hearts is the most serious imaginable. If these Jews don't repent and heed this warning, they will go to hell forever. Such unrepentant, go-through-the-motion worshipers who rebel against God all during the week will also go to hell forever, as the vast majority of the first generation of Israelites did. The first word in Psalm 95, verse 7d is this. Today. It is used four times in the aforementioned Hebrews exposition. And some of you... I feel good about saying this. Some of you may already be evangelistically thinking of the urgency of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. 
the second half of that. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen. In the same vein, one Old Testament scholar writes this about the word today in Psalm 95 or 70. It signifies a redemptive time, if not moment, when repentance is divinely summoned. When the Jews heard this word today, as a part of the immediate context of hear or Shema, they would probably think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 with me. And I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And right again, before I read that, I want to make sure we're zoned in on the context. Psalm 95, 7D through 8A says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Be on the lookout here for three key words. There's more than that, but for now, three key words. Today, hear in heart. Today, hear in heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the greatest commandment, to love Yahweh with all our heart, soul, and strength. God's voice is the very words of the Bible. We obey today by hiding God's word in our hearts. Psalm 119, verses 10 and 11. Psalm 119, verses 10 and 11 exalts the excellencies of the word of God. This will prevent your heart from getting hardened. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden or treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm going to surprise you. Let's include verse 12 also so that we can obey Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We need, to, we need God to teach us his statutes so that we can teach them to our kids. This will enable us as parents to teach God's word diligently to our children. Let's call this Operation Saturation. This is a preemptive strike against the hardening of hearts. This is the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses is therefore given a repetition of the law, rehearsing history and giving them additional instructions to prepare this second generation of Jews about to enter the land of Canaan. They must know and meditate on God's word so that they will not forget God. They must know and remember God's word so that they will not harden their hearts to rebel against God as the first generation did. Do you see how important it is to teach our children the wonderful ways of our trying God? We must teach history, his 
story to prevent hard, rebellious, stubborn, obdurate hearts. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 8. I'm going to read this. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 8 says this with respect to the law of God in the history of Israel. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 8. We will not hide them from their children. Tell unto the generation to come the, the praises of the Lord in his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, when he, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Again, that was Psalm 78, verses 4 through 8. This is a multi-generational vision that we can implement by God's grace. To what? To prayerfully affect not only our children, but their future children and so on. Future generations. Let's journey back to the first generation that came out of Egypt. This is the primary, the first generation. This is the primary historical focus of Psalm 95. Two weeks ago, we read, we read from Exodus chapter 14, verses 30, all the way to Exodus 15 and 7, and chapter 15, verse 11. This is the song of Moses, saying to celebrate the deliverance from the Egyptian army that was crushed by the waters of the Red Sea when they tried to cross it. The Jews again saw the mighty power of Yahweh. This is a major reason for the Jews to sing songs of joy with thankfulness to the rock of their salvation. When they think of salvation, they think of that and many other things, any kind of deliverance. Very soon after this, they started to complain against God. What do I mean by very soon? Three days. They complained to Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, about lacking water. And the water they did find was bitter. So Moses prayed fervently, and God graciously performed a miracle and turned the bitter waters into drinkable sweet water. Next, in Exodus chapter 16, they complained against Moses and Aaron about lack of food. You know the story. It's amazing. God provided quail each evening and manna each morning. Daily miracles that prove the faithfulness and love of Yahweh for his complaining people. God said in both chapters that he was testing his people. And in later chapters, like Deuteronomy, uh, another book, Deuteronomy chapter 8, he tested them. It was for their good. But they were failing these tests miserably. Let's not do that. Let's pass these tests. Kids, let's pass these tests, these challenges that we have with an A plus by God's grace and for his glory. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And we're reading this because the Bible says in Psalm 95, verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as in the, rebe as in the rebellion as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And then following. And this is the historical account. 
in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to see about the rebellion. This rebellion is called Meribah. Maybe change it like that in your Bible in Psalm 95 or in your marginal note. Rebellion or Meribah in the trial or Massah in the wilderness. Just remember, the complaining already began in chapters 15 and 16. This is a 40-year persistent problem of unfaithfulness. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, that's referring to Sinai, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that all the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Israelites were being led on their journey by Yahweh. He led them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. This was the presence of Yahweh, the glory of God. The glory of God was, was guiding them. God is guiding them, verse 1 says. Verse 1, according to the commandment of the Lord. And the wilderness of sin, as I mentioned, is connected with the, with the word Sinai. They were heading south. They were heading in the direction of Mount Sinai, and they camped at Rephidim. This is in southwest Sinai area. Verse 2 says, but there was no water for the people to drink. Why would God in his sovereignty, in his providential loving care for his people, bring them to a place with no water? Why does our loving God bring us to places where we find no immediate provision for our physical needs? God is teaching us to walk by faith, not by sight, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7. James, chapter, that was 2 Corinthians 5, 7. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 gives us the answer. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, that is, endurance or perseverance. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, that is, mature and complete, lacking nothing. God tests us. God tests us. We don't test God. God tests us through trials to test the genuineness of our faith and to grow us in our faith. 
impractical or progressive sanctification. Simply put, growing spiritually, becoming more like Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 12. James 1, 12 says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, that is, perseveres under trial, or who patiently endures testing. For when he has been approved, that is, passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. To consistently pass the test of trials by persevering in faith is evidence that you have saving faith. Saving faith is God's gift. Saving faith is God's gift of persevering faith. Praise God. Saving faith is, by definition, a persevering faith. It keeps on going in the race. It doesn't permanently drop out when the going gets tough. Using a different analogy, you may get on the bench, but you will want to get back in the game. By God's grace through faith, you submit, come under the authority of God's sovereignty. This provides assurance of eternal life. And you can worship God even thanking God. One of our songs here, even thanking God through your tears for the trials and pain. Do we realize what we're singing? Real saving faith worships God daily, not just on Sundays. Like Job, real saving faith can withstand any trial. Dear brethren, I want to encourage you. Dear brethren, you can, you can say with Job in Job chapter 1, verse 21, in Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible prevents you from hardening your hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us spiritual hearing so that we can hear your voice today so that we won't harden our hearts with the deceitfulness of sinful complaining. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for using the Scripture to soften the new hearts we received at salvation. The bad example to avoid, the bad example to avoid in Psalm 95 is this in Exodus chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore the people contended or quarreled with Moses. Verse 3 says, the people complained or murmured or grumbled against Moses. This is not counting at all joy, is it? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. That'll get the kids' attention. Philippians 2, 14 tells us, tells us, tells our hearts how to respond. Do all things without complaining and disputing. I'll say it again. Do all things without complaining or grumbling or murmuring and disputing or arguing or questioning. We dare not question God's ways. His ways are above our ways. His ways are perfect. Amen? Yes, amen. But these Israelites complained about lack of water, 